Christ is red, white, and blue. But our nation is rainbow. Red, yellow, brown, black, and white. We're all precious in God's sight. America, America is not like a blanket, one piece of unbroken cloth, the same color, the same texture, the same size. America is more like a quilt, many patches, many pieces, many colors, many sizes, all woven and held together by a common thread. Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and in 1988, the Washington football team had a black quarterback, Doug Williams, and he became the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl. I was a young and idealistic college student at the time, interested in politics and Jesse Jackson's campaigns, and I changed my voicemail message to read, congratulations to Doug Williams on winning the Super Bowl and to win the Super Bowl of jobs, peace, and justice. America needs a black quarterback. Jesse Jackson. From 1988 to 92, my ATM password was JJ92. I've changed it now, people. Earlier in the 80s, I volunteered for Jesse at the 84 Democratic Convention that was in San Francisco, and I knew that entire convention speech by heart. I would walk around reciting it the way some people do song lyrics. Clearly, the Jackson presidential campaigns were profound and transformative experiences in my life, and that For those who don't know, civil rights leader and activist Jesse Jackson ran for president twice, 1984 and in 1988, and the brand and banner of his campaigns was the Rainbow Coalition. And it's a concept he talked about when the old minorities come together, they comprise a new majority, red, yellow, brown, black, and white, we're all precious in God's sight. And so that was the way we talked about his candidacies and his movement was as the Rainbow Coalition. And bigger picture, it is very underappreciated just how transformative those campaigns and the Rainbow Coalition movement overall were to this country and its politics. As I wrote in the introduction to Brown is the New White, my first book, I wrote, before Barack Obama went to law school, before Spike Lee made his first movie, before Shonda Rhimes could even dream of writing television shows featuring actors of color, A 42-year-old black civil rights leader shook up the political system by running for president of the United States of America. To get from Martin in 1968 to Barack in 2008, we needed Jesse in 1984 and 1988. Last month, I went to Chicago to attend the 35th reunion of alumni from the campaign, and I wanted to take the time today to help us all remember and appreciate that critical period in the country's progressive politics. I'm delighted to be joined by a key leader in the Jackson campaigns and a longtime friend and mentor of mine. And for this conversation, I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, who likes to say that we should have a drinking game for the number of times I've mentioned Jesse in the podcast. Hi, Charlene. How are you? Is the power on in Canada? We missed you for the last episode. And do you want to introduce our guest? Hey, Steve. The power is back on. It is so great to be back. And yes, I was also kind of laughing to myself thinking out of all the if this was if our podcast was a jesse jackson drinking game out of all the episodes man i don't think people are not gonna be not gonna be making it to the end of this episode (laughs) and just really looking forward to this special conversation today with our special guest i know that the two of you share a lot of incredible history together and i can't wait to get into it in addition to our special guest we are doing something a little bit different today with this episode, we are also going to be hearing from Rainbow Coalition alum, Pierre Barillet, Dr. Amanda Kemp, Teresa Montano, and Ellen Spears. We'll also share more archival clips from Jesse Jackson's 1984 Democratic National Convention speech. And we're going to be linking the full recordings in our show notes. So listeners should be checking that out. And with that, I want to dive right in and introduce our guest by sharing a little bit of background about him. Our guest today is Eddie Wong. Eddie is a longtime leading activist and artist in the Asian Pacific American community. He was the national field director for Reverend Jesse Jackson's historical 1988 campaign for president. Eddie was one of the top Asian Americans in media in the 90s, and he served as executive director of the Center for Asian American Media, also known as CAM, 
the largest organization dedicated to the advancement of Asian Americans in independent media, specifically the areas of television and filmmaking. Just a great organization. In the 1970s, Eddie founded the nonprofit media company Visual Communications, which produced books, slideshows, photo exhibits, and films about Asian American and Pacific Islander experiences. He was the founding editor of the magazine East Wind, Politics and Culture of Asians in America, which was published in the 1980s, and he's now the editor of a related e-zine, also called East Wind. Eddie also earned his MFA in film directing at UCLA. Welcome, Eddie. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks, Charlene and Steve. Yeah, I, I've known you Eddie, since, since the 1980s and did not know until yesterday that you actually had an MFA in film directing from UCLA. So. The things you learn on our podcast. That's right. <laughs> if Blacks vote in great numbers, progressive whites win. It's the only way progressive whites win. If Blacks vote in great numbers, Hispanics win. When Blacks, Hispanics, and progressive whites vote, women win. When women win, children win. When women and children win, workers win. We must all come up together. We must come up together. That was more from the 1984 convention speech towards the end. And I can only imagine the energy and excitement there. I was a teen when this was all happening. And I remembered watching a lot of the footage on TV. My parents, Chinese immigrants, were just wowed also by this young African-American guy who was taking the nation politically by storm and so charismatic and just such a great public speaker. So let's talk about what convinced each of you to join the campaign in the first place. I wanted to start with you, Eddie. Well, you know, uh, I have to admit this, that I was a bit of a skeptic at first, really. I mean, I had seen Jesse, you know, in the 70s through public media, like now who can forget, you know, him being the MC at Wattstacks, you know, he had that huge afro mm-hmm. and he was he was crying nation time, which was something, you know, he adopted mm-hmm. from Mary Baraka after co-chairing the National Black Political Assembly in 1972. So I knew was he was a black leader. I knew that he was really pushing entrepreneurship and ownership for African-Americans. So it was sort of a black mm-hmm. capitalism kind of thrust. And I was a little like, what is he doing now running for president? But what really convinced me to really go full in was actually the people who were supporting him. I went to these early organizing meetings in late 1983 in San Francisco uh, that were held at Cecil Williams's church, Glide Memorial. And it was such a uh, amalgamation of, of everything in San Francisco. It's very strong African-American presence, elderly church ladies, hippies, environmentalists, labor union people, everybody. And like you had not seen that kind of gathering very often, even in a place as liberal as San Francisco. So that convinced me more than anything that something transformative was going to happen. And I kind of went in from there. I, I spoke about why Asian Americans needed to be part of this coalition. And I think somehow that impressed Cecil Williams enough to offer me a job running the San Francisco office. And then I just quit my job and went full into the campaign. How about you, Steve? Well, it's actually fascinating to hear that because I didn't, didn't know some of that background in terms of Eddie getting yeah, involved in the campaign background. and Cecil and uh, Glyde. Um, it was important in my own political development as well. So I think for me, it was the it was the intersection of the 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 man in the moment in my internal trying to come of age as you know a young adult. I was 19 when he first began uh, running in 1983 for the 84 campaign in college, trying to find my way, being an activist, trying to understand why racism exists and what's you know, inequality, what can we do about it? And very drawn to and inspired by the civil rights movement, right? And I think we've talked before in other podcasts about how I read every single biography of Martin Luther King in my elementary school library. My mom had these books around the house and these magazines. So the civil rights milieu was very much deeply a part of my upbringing and also the black church tradition, right? My grandfather uh, was a minister at Glenville Church of God for 50 years. So that was very much part of my experience. And then I was also from a very young age drawn to, from a very young age, drawn to politics, right? I mean, I watched the Watergate hearings as a 10-year-old. My next door neighbor, uh, Art Brooks, ran for state legislature and I was like eight and I went to the victory party. And so that was deeply in me. 
So when Jesse ran, all of these things came together. And it is also, it's hard to even convey the cultural and, 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 and kind of psychological significance that I was saying that this was before Spike Lee, before you had these images on television, before you had really powerful pictures of Black people contending for positions of power. So that spoke to me as a 19-year-old trying to make my way. And so all of those pieces came together. Somebody who was a direct, tangible connection to the civil rights movement was literally there when Dr. King was assassinated, who spoke in language that evoked uh, a lot of religious metaphor and touched that tradition, and who was stepping into the realm of electoral politics. And so all of that deeply, deeply resonated with me. And as we were saying, it was formative, particularly at that stage of my life when I was trying to figure out who I was and how to make a difference and what the examples and the models were. And it was um, obviously a life-changing experience. And it was apparently a life-changing experience, I think, for a lot of people based on some of the other people we've talked to and the power of the momentum that became the Rainbow Coalition. We had some folks who were involved with the Rainbow Coalition during the 80s share some of their fondest memories from that time. Here's what some members of the Rainbow Coalition had to say about what drew them to Jesse and his campaign. I never thought I would meet Jesse Jackson or that I would work for the Rainbow Coalition while I was in California, but I ended up going to college at Stanford and through my own activism and Free South Africa movement, I started to meet other people in the Rainbow Coalition in the Bay Area. And I remember when I first saw Asian American musicians playing at a Jesse Jackson event, I saw two Chinese American musicians, Francis Wong and John Jang, and I had never been in a truly multiracial space where there was the fervor and the commitment to justice and inclusion and wholeness was the same as mine. My daughter turned eight during the 1988 campaign. Now, we talked about the Rainbow Coalition all the time at our house during those years because I was a delegate from Atlanta's 5th Congressional District to the San Francisco 84 Convention and again in Atlanta. I was state co-chair in Georgia in 1988, Um, but she came to us one day with a poster she had made, which we did not prompt, and the poster was a picture of a black child and a white child reaching out, holding hands, and across the top she had written in third grade scrawl, Jesse Jackson is going to win. At the Atlanta Victory Rally that night on Super Tuesday, 1988, which was packed with Reverend Jackson's supporters and broadcast on national television. My husband, uh, Brian Spears, spoke saying, when Jesse wins, we all win. So in ways large and small, Reverend Jackson did win, uh, is winning, and will keep on winning. Steve and Eddie, what was it like actually working on a campaign as historical as Jesse Jackson's Well, maybe I can start by sharing a little bit about how 84 and 88, there's a continuity to them. And at the same time, they're they're somewhat different. I think the the continuity point is the word discovery. And by that, I meant in 84, I think a new generation like Steve, who were young African-Americans who had not directly experienced the civil rights movement, were discovering a new era in black political power and a new awareness uh, of the need for, you know, the social movement for full equality. So that was a new discovery. At the same time, I think uh, America was discovering who Jesse Jackson really is. I mean, they had never seen someone like this who was a powerful speaker, yet also an activist. He didn't just talk, he actually did things, and who was an internationalist, and they didn't expect that when he brought home Lieutenant Goodman from Syria through his negotiation skills. That was something unprecedented for a white politician, let alone a black politician to accomplish. So these are all new things about that. But I think that the, the, the other word too that links the two campaigns is passion. I mean, you never saw such passion in politics before because it really wasn't about just politics. 
it was really a crusade to change America. And, you know, so Jesse would do things that, you know, wouldn't necessarily gain him more votes. Like he would go to these poor communities at the Texas borders, the colonias, where, you know, immigrant uh, Mexican-Americans, Mexicans crossing the border would live in these really terrible conditions, no running water, raw sewage, just really extreme poverty. He went there repeatedly. Mm. Did that get him more votes? No, because none of those people were registered to vote or eligible to vote. He did it because it was the right thing to do. So that aspect of having a moral crusade to awaken the consciousness of America was very much in the King tradition and really set him apart from other politicians. So I would start with that, the passion, then the sense of renewal, the sense of like for the African-American community and other communities of color to see themselves as powerful agents of change and something that this is a vehicle, an opportunity for us to engage in that. Yeah, yeah I thought what Eddie was saying is very much on point. And I think that it's, again, it's really hard to recreate because so much has changed over the, over, you know, contextually and culturally, you know, we like, I met, I met somebody, this was in the early 2000s, and they said that their daughter's first presidential campaign was in Massachusetts, right, when they, uh, when Deval Patrick, African-American ran um, for governor, and then her second campaign was um, Barack Obama. And just so like her, the con- the context of like how, uh, how, you know, matter of fact of having, you know, black candidates and black leaders, et cetera. Um, it's, you really just can't like, uh, Julie Martinez was on the podcast, you know, on our friends and guests regularly, her son, like this is like 12 years ago that came home from school is like, he had been at a thing with African ambassadors uh, and whatnot. And he's like, why are all presidents black? And <laughs> so it was like, so it's really hard to convey how unusual it was but also how inspiring that was, right? There's the whole thing, which is also kind of mad. And they kept saying, what does Jesse want? You know, obviously he couldn't want to be president. I was like, no, he wants to be president. And so Mm. the level of having as African-American be able to have somebody stand on that stage and uh, stand, you know, toe to toe with the top leaders in the country, we had not been invited before. Um, And he talked about the uh, Lieutenant Goodman, right? So those Lieutenant Goodman was 1984, was a naval uh, pilot who had been shot down in Syria and he was being held hostage. And, you know, Reagan was president at the time and there was, you know, they couldn't do anything to actually get him out. And it was this whole big crisis. And Jesse was like, I'm going to go get him. And Jesse went to Syria, got a meeting with the president or the head of Syria, and then got him released and then brought him home. And then Reagan had to have Jesse and Goodman at the White House and they had this whole press conference. So the audacity, the courage, the the you just didn't see that in in and so I think it had this profound psychological impact as well that people haven't fully appreciated. Also makes me think Chris Rock had this bit at that time. He says, "Yeah, Jesse went to Syria to get Lieutenant Goodman." And I think what he did is he went to the the head of Syria and he said, "If you really want to piss off America, give Robert Goodman to me." And so yeah, that whole dynamic. So I just think that that can't be undervalued, the level to which he changed people's psychology and the thinking about what the role of Black people and Black leaders and people of color overall um, is in this country. Yeah, I think also on that same kind of note, Jesse asked us to envision ourselves differently to be part of this rainbow coalition. I mean, we, you know, everyone had been organizing in their silos and, you know, it was, a, I think, a giant awakening for people in the, the peace and uh, anti-intervention movement to say, you know, we really could benefit by having black allies. And they hadn't considered it because until Jesse said, you should be in this rainbow coalition. And in a similar fashion, he always mentioned, when I win, you win. So there was this sense of inclusion, the sense of empowerment for everyone. In other words, he he just wasn't there to represent us. He was there to embrace everybody and bring them into positions of of authority, of power, of dialogue. And that that made a huge difference for people. That's why people loved him, as opposed to saying, yeah, he's okay, I'll vote for him. It's a whole different thing. Yeah, Yeah, it's a really good reminder that what I think especially young people today may take for granted in that there is this, especially among progressives, 
it's a very normalized concept that we are, you know, trying to build a multiracial democracy, you know, that it is intersectional, right? This is a concept that people already have. But back then, that wasn't how the conversation was being framed. And that wasn't how the movement was being framed. That wasn't how the movement was working. Like you said, there was at the time just a lot of siloed energies and efforts. I think this is a good place for us to take a pause and have us also listen to some of the comments from other members of the Rainbow Coalition and hear what they had to say about working on the campaign. I remember during the 1988 speech when he was talking about the person who took the early bus and who cleaned bedpans and my mother being a member of 1199 in Connecticut and was a nurse's aide. And I remember thinking that he was speaking directly to me in that speech. And it had a really profound impact on the direction of my life. And I feel so honored to have had an opportunity to be able to work for him. It was one of those things that I think is so important about Reverend Jackson. He's able to see the value in all people, including people who are so different from him. I remember the way he had so many friends in Davenport, Iowa, who supported him and the farmers who he constantly felt were being given the short end of the stick by the banks and how important he thought the labor movement was in providing dignity to people. I learned many lessons during the Jackson campaign. I learned the importance of black and brown unity. I learned that the issues impacting brown youth were the very same issues impacting black youth in Southern California. Issues like police brutality, issues like low-income housing, poor quality education, the lack of jobs and opportunities. Jesse Jackson reached out to those of us in East Los Angeles. He rallied our community and won that vote. So Jesse Jackson believed that a winning coalition included people of all races and colors. Steve, can you tell the story of how the Rainbow Coalition came to be? So what was happening in the country at state and local levels were these struggles of people of color, communities of color, candidates of color to be respected and established on the landscape and on the stage. And so a lot of these different pieces, particularly in like 1983, laid the groundwork for both the imperative and the opportunity um, for Jesse to run, right? So um, Harold Washington running for mayor of Chicago was a, very much captivated the imagination of the whole country and the African-Americans in particular. And it was this monumental political upset, but it's incredible. They had like, you know, 80 to 90% turnout of African-American voters, huge um, voter registration. It was this massive, massive movement, deeply felt and in, in a lot of pride. But the white Democratic leadership nationally in the country did not back Harold Washington. Right? They, so certainly in the primary, they backed these other candidates. And so it was really seen as a slap in the face and that African-Americans were not being respected. And the Jesse talks in one of the um, Eyes on the Prize segments about how that was part of the impetus to say that we have to demand our respect and assert and show our political strength. And so you had that, and then you also had these strong campaigns. Um, Mel King, African-American, ran for mayor of Boston. Wilson Good was elected mayor in Philadelphia, African-Americans. And so that showed the power and potential um, for such a campaign. Actually, Mel King is the person who used, who kind of originally coined the phrase Rainbow Coalition for his uh, mayoral campaign in Boston. And then Jesse saw all that was happening, saw the movement, saw the power and potential, and also saw the disrespect, frankly, that we were getting from national political leaders. And all of that is what propelled him to get into the mix uh, to run for president in 84. And again, that's something else. I mean, you had 22 candidates this past, you know, election and whatnot, and everybody who ever, you know, watched the movie about the White House or the West Wing or something thought they could run for president. But it was so bold and brazen to actually say that, no, I'm going to run. And that's really what propelled him. And that's what all of us who were experiencing that similar level of disrespect, frankly, gravitated towards that campaign. And the rest is history. Yeah, actually, Steve, there was actually an, an earlier uh, version of the Rainbow Coalition. And to me, as I reflect back on things, this points out the role of leadership being so important. 
That Rainbow Coalition was started by Fred Hampton in Chicago. Oh, wow. And it yeah, brought yeah. together an alliance with the Young Lords, uh, which was a gang in Chicago. And it branched out to meeting with people in New York. So that Rainbow Coalition also included the White Patriot Party and people from uptown. You know, so they, you have these white Appalachian migrants into Chicago. And what they had in common was they were all being abused by the police. They're all mm-hmm. basically living in poverty and they had no political power but you know fred hampton if you watch any of those movies and clips of him he is such a dynamic presence in a way very similar to jesse jackson and so the idea has always been sort of percolating there in uh, american history and life even going back to alabama you know sharecroppers union which is black and white i mean there have been attempts to forge multiracial uh, alliances but it takes such tremendous leadership and resources to keep it going. And uh, I just wanted to add that in. There's an excellent documentary about that first Rainbow Coalition on PBS as well. Yeah, and so I think you had mentioned it, but just to put a point on in terms of listeners don't know. So Fred Hampton was a Black Panther leader um, in Chicago and a very captivating, galvanating force who was killed by the police, which was a major um, point within the country's civil rights history. Eddie, I'm, I'm particularly interested in getting some insight to Jesse Jackson's relationship with the Asian American community. And obviously you worked with him for years. The story of Vincent Chin, again, Vincent Chin was a Chinese American man who was beaten to death by two white men in 1982 in an act of anti-Asian hate and racism. And you've recounted a story about oh, sorry, Jesse. Let me just contextualize that real quickly too, in terms of, uh, this was, these were white auto workers who were blaming Japan for taking auto-working jobs. And they attacked Vincent Chin, who was actually not Japanese, as an uh, act of hate crime. Yes, yeah, it's a, um, a real historic moment in Asian American history, actually. And I think what I wanted to ask you, Eddie, is that uh, the story that you've told before about Jesse visiting Vincent Chin's mother and what that meant to the Asian American community. And just if you can talk a little bit more about the response from the Asian American community at that time and what it meant for the Rainbow Coalition. You know, when we formed Asian Americans for Jackson in 84, at the beginning of the campaign, one of our first jobs was actually to draft position papers for the for the campaign. And, you know, of course, we talked about what the history of anti-Asian violence was at the time. And of course, we talked about the Vincent Chin case and when we knew that Jesse was coming to San Francisco as part of the 84 California swing, uh, Mabel Tang, who was one of the co-chairs, along with Ying Lee Kelly and Butch Wing, actually met with Reverend Jackson and said, look, we have to really, we want you to come to this uh, rally that we're having at Cameron House, which is a Presbyterian mission in Chinatown with a very progressive orientation through Reverend Norman Fong. And we're having a program with Mrs. Lily Chin. Won't you come speak? Because this will make a huge impact as far as being able to have, you know, a Black Asian alliance against hate. And so he met with Mrs. Chin and they talked briefly and he spoke, you know, eloquently, of course, on the program. And I think that electrified Asian Americans across the country that of all the candidates running for president, he was the only one who would speak out on this case. And in a way that was so personal, that was so powerful, and it reverberated you know, literally across the country. And then very shortly after that, we had a huge rally in Portsmouth Square, Chinatown, and thousands of people came. The place was packed, and it was like working people, poor people, you know, residents and seniors, many of whom didn't even speak English, but they came to see a presidential candidate in Chinatown who was an African-American who was speaking to their concerns. It was a very powerful moment. I believe that Portsmouth rally was on May 13th, which was my birthday, because actually Mm. I went to that rally. Wow. And I remember Mabel, well, I remember two things from that rally. Well, one was Mabel was translating, and Jesse says, says, Mabel said to me that she feels like a minority. And I said to Mabel, Asians are a minority nowhere on this planet. Ain't but so much earth in so many Asians, 
right? So just about that reframing, you know, in terms of putting those things in the global context. And I'll never forget Mabel talking about the Vincent Chin when, and her voice breaking and talking about Jesse being the only candidate who would go to meet with Vincent Chin's mother. So it's just very moving and very powerful. Right. And he did that repeatedly with uh, other groups. And we went to Little Tokyo and spoke to people about redress and reparations for Japanese Americans. I mean, he actually learned from us and he was humble right. enough to say, I don't know this history. I mm-hmm. wasn't taught this. Mm-hmm. You tell me about this and I'll amplify it. And that's what he did. Wow. That's, I'm learning so much. Uh, like I said, I was young and, and remember that moment from my own perspective as a young person, but very, very remotely, really just watching it unfold on TV and watching my parents' reactions. But I'm just, I'm loving getting this insight. And Steve, I know you love that quote about Asians, but I love now that I'm getting the context of when you first heard that quote. And it's a good thing to remember. I'm going to pivot now to talk about something that seems unrelated to what we're talking about, but has a profound role, which is technology. Steve, I know you're very fond of Excel sheets. I, I tease you about it. I know that you love getting into elaborate spreadsheets, especially with our own Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega, who you mentioned before, who has sometimes been on our podcast. And I am a words person, um, despite having surprisingly a bachelor's in accounting. That's another story due to my immigrant parents. But I actually really glaze over at spreadsheets with numbers and I'm always in wow like so wow that you guys can spend hours on these huge spreadsheets. I'm curious how this 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 I have a point this is connected. I'm curious if you were that data driven when you first joined Jesse's campaign mm-hmm. and I'm curious about the technology and its role during that. And technology was changing drastically in the 80s. It was before the internet. It was right before the dot com era and bubble that grew in the late 90s. How did the campaign harness and use technology? And what was the technology? It's interesting you phrased the question, because Charlene, I never actually thought about it that way before. Because yes, I'm obsessed with spreadsheets now, but I didn't know. I did not come into the campaign with that understanding of data. And it really was through the campaign that I began to understand the power of data and different levels of data, and then in using data to organize people and turn people out to get electoral outcomes, including the running for delegate. Right. So I ran for a delegate and was an uh, alternate delegate of Jesse in 84 and was a delegate in 88. And then, you know, using side stories that we, the election to decide who was, you, it was a vote. People would come to vote at a little caucus and whoever got the most votes would be the delegates. And then if your candidate does well enough, then you get to go to the convention. So this was at Stanford and we were all in a lobby, this is 1984. And then one of the people in the lobby there was Condoleezza Rice who was a professor at Stanford at the time, right? And that, so we assumed black woman Condoleezza Rice was coming into the Jackson caucus with us, but she went into the caucus for Gary Hart, this other Democrat, right? So little did we know mm. she was on this trajectory <laughs> towards being this Republican mm-hmm. leader and whatnot. So you had all of that, but what's so interesting is that, I don't even know if you know this, Eddie, but Eddie introduced me to spreadsheets. And I still remember, Eddie, you, it was, I think it was Lotus 123 before they even had Excel back in the day. And you were showing me how you could use spreadsheets to analyze past voting patterns in a particular precinct to see which precincts, which candidate had done well in that precinct to try to identify areas that had potential that you could actually use to focus on. And so that my whole obsession with spreadsheets in many ways goes back to the rainbow in general and to Eddie in particular. So I don't know if you want to elaborate on how you, and as the national field director, clearly that was part of your responsibility. Well, first of all, I wanted to disabuse any notions of me being a math whiz. I almost got a D in algebra. I am the, the least mathematically inclined person. But the, the Lotus spreadsheets and all that was just simply a way of strategizing how to win. And, you know, my basic background is in organizing. As a student organizer, I did some tenant organizing in Little Tokyo in Los Angeles. And you just simply have to look at who's voting and who's not voting. You know, and so you, you have to reduce it to numbers and then you have to rank precincts by which ones have greater likelihood of turnout. So it's a very simple strategic approach and having databases made it so much faster to do than like writing things down and using a calculator or something. Uh, and computers were just becoming kind of more widely used at that time. But it was, I think it was really in 88 that the camp Jackson campaign tried to figure out a way 
to utilize small donations. And in order to do that, you have to track every donation and make sure you then report it to the FEC to apply for matching funds. Mm -hmm. So a friend of ours, Ivan Handler in Chicago, is a math whiz, is a computer geek, and he actually wrote a program for the campaign and said, let's use this. And it was on a floppy disk, and it it sort of like started the whole small donor movement in American politics. But a lot of what, what we tried to do was basically just analyze where we could get the most votes and win the most delegates. And actually, I spent most of my time as the National Field Director in the early stages of the Exploratory Committee, just looking at the key states in the South and the caucus states, because we knew that we could out-organize most people. And in states like Minnesota, where there are actually very few African-Americans, we could actually come in second in the caucus by having uh, a strong organization among white progressives and, and of course, the smaller African-American community. So that was really, it was really driven by strategy rather than having this giant technical power because we didn't have that. I mean, we had landlines. I think we had fax <laughs> machines. Uh, there was, mm-hmm. you know, like cell phones were not even around. I didn't That's use right. cell phones I know, I until know, 89. Right. And it was the size of like a small phone book, you know? <laughs> it was like, it was called the brick. Who has the brick? You know, wow. you, you know lug it around. <gasps> yeah, I just I I can just imagine young organizers listening to this going, "How did you possibly even do your work? No cell phone, no internet, no social media, no text." But I want to emphasize this point about the power of the analysis that can actually come through with this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. In that, because people a lot they credit a lot of Obama's campaign with being able to with analyzing how you could pick up delegates in this different district, et cetera. But any things that in 88, we were actually doing that long before, you know, Obama became a national figure. And it's still not something that's appreciated in national politics, right? So there's a recent poll that came out in the New York Times about the 2024 presidential race. And then they have the Daily Podcast talking with their pollster person and analyzing this. And this poll has a 43 to 43% tie between Trump and Biden. It's like, mm. oh, why it's so close, blah, blah, blah. But if you understand spreadsheets, you understand digging into the underlying numbers, this poll has Biden's support among African-Americans at 71%. Never in the history of polling in presidential politics has a Democratic nominee got that little black support. I mean, it's always been mid-80s, low-80s at the top. And so that right there explains this 43-43, but the Times and its experts and the whole national narrative it's like, oh, well, it's tied because they don't understand how to use the data and the spreadsheets in an underlying analytical fashion. I think the yes. other thing, too, is that our analysis was not just by looking at election results, but looking at institutions. So when we looked at a congressional district, we looked at how many black colleges are there, how many other colleges mm-hmm. are there, um, how many uh, black radio stations are in the area of, of dominant radius, you know, whatever they call that in Gale's media directory. And you have to sort of plot then, like where could you get the maximum exposure for your message to an audience that would accept that message and that would resonate with them? And so a lot of it was just, again, going back to the analysis of where the people were and who would respond. Right. And that's that that, that explains the Michigan primary result in 1988, right? Which at that point was one of the greatest political moments of my life. And that is an upset that Jesse defeated Dukakis in Michigan uh, in was March of 88. And with completely lost the Jesse Leslie leading in the delegate count to be the nominee. But the way that we won Michigan is what Eddie was talking about, looking at where the votes are, we're looking at what the potential is. And they saw that Michigan had same day voter registration. So you didn't have to get people registered weeks ahead of time. And so Jesse went to Michigan and went to the public housing projects. It's like, come on and vote and mobilize these people, just bringing them directly to the polls, did that and won the state and shocked the nation. That is a lesson that has stayed with me for 40 plus years. Right, and a lot of credit goes to Mignon Moore, who mm-hmm. is uh, our, our chief, uh, she was a deputy national field director and she was there in Michigan. And I was there with him on the, the last bus tour before the caucus. We stayed up for 48 hours straight on that bus. There was uh, the bus that Whoa. went everywhere. And like we were doing rallies in housing projects at 2 a.m and at 4 a.m. Wow. And people came out. I mean, literally, it was like banging on a, on a pot or something and saying, <laughs> y'all come out, man. Jesse's right. here. 
and people did. <laughs> and and as Steve said, it was same day registration. So like it was like if you're gonna vote, vote right now. Like you know, in two hours, the polls are the caucus opens, and mm. so it was just like. An electrifying experience. I think I slept for like another forty-eight hours after that. <laughs> I, I bet, man. I'm I'm hoping uh, if there's not already a documentary with all this insight, that documentary. Oh, Eddie, you would probably know best. Is is there a documentary that really captures a lot of what you guys are talking about today? With these stories and I, I well, just interestingly, it a, a there's a documentary film. being made right now about Robin uh, yeah. By a, a UK company, uh, yeah. and it's this being led. One of the something. producers is Bill Keys, who used to travel with Irvin Jackson, and okay. they were at the reunion shooting interviews with people. So oh, I'm great. hoping it'll come out by the end of the year. Yeah, I guess share this episode with them because there's a lot of great stuff in here, great stories, including people may not know this, but several members of Congress, including Representative Barbara Lee and Maxine Waters. Maxine Waters, by the way, was Jesse's national co-chair. They and others came out of the Jackson campaign. Who were some other notable folks that worked on the campaigns? And what influence do you think that experience had on their eventual work in politics? Well, I recall one person very vividly, and that's Paul Wellstone, uh, the senator mm. from Minnesota, who died tragically in a plane crash. Mm. Paul was a professor at a political science at, I think, Carleton College. And he drove like all night from Minneapolis, St. Paul to Chicago to attend a strategy meeting. And he brought with him Chris Blake and a bunch of people. And you can see he had the fire in his belly. I mean, he he was just ready to take on America by himself. And I'm mm -hmm. so glad that Jesse Jackson was on his side. Uh, so he became senator uh, in the camp in the years, a couple of years after the 88 campaign. Uh, other people like Senator... Carol Mosley Braun, first black woman in the U.S. Senate, winning in Illinois, a state that is majority white, and uh, did it with the Jackson Coalition. And then throughout the South, there are people who ran for Congress and won. Benny Thompson, who headed the campaign in Sunflower County in the Mississippi Delta, is now the congressperson. And of course, everybody knows him through the, the January 6th commission now as the co-chair. But he was the person who ran the Jackson campaign in the Mississippi Delta, along with many, many other civil rights veterans. So those are just a, a few people. And of course, Steve, you can talk about, you know, David Dinkins and all the other people that won yeah. right yeah. after. Yeah, the whole all generation of us, you know, myself included, were both learned how to campaign and were inspired to do it. Right? And you mentioned Mabel Tang, right? Became the supervisor in San Francisco, um, and then the assessor. And I think the thing about Dinkins and Wilds that I want to lift up because people don't appreciate that as well. And so both the campaign infrastructure in New York City and then in Virginia. Jesse's campaigns created an infrastructure, a voting block, a set of activists and organizers. And also, I quite frankly think it changed the psychology of people again. And so to force Virginians to think about Jesse Jackson being president of the United States in 1988, I believe expanded their conception of what was possible so that in 1989, they could elect the first black governor of Virginia, Doug Wilder. And so that's some of the additional legacy and reverberations and impact I think we've seen. I am taking all this history. This is such rich history, and I mean it. I just hope that the people who are making the film, they get to hear all this because that you two of you have so many insights and stories into that time and being able to connect the dots the way that you just did. Here's what some others have had to say about the legacy of the campaign, so let's listen in. The Rainbow Coalition's progressive agenda is carried through today uh, by organizations like the Alabama New South Coalition, the Georgia Coalition for a People's Agenda, and by Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight Action, all of which really stand on the shoulders of Reverend Jackson's successes in the 1980s. It's really telling that the Biden-Harris uh, administration has focused so much on making sure that they provide dignity and equity in almost all facets of the IRA and all of their legislation. I feel like that's really an echo of, of the types of politics and the type of leadership that Reverend Jackson represented and I think will continue to represent as we continue to struggle against the uh, oligarchs who 
are constantly trying to divide us. So as we wrap up our show, I wanted to ask both of you about some of the key lessons learned from Reverend Jackson's campaigns, the mission and the work. And also, I actually also wanted to ask what it was like, kind of like to be in his presence, if you had any stories of like one-on-one, you know, one-on-one interactions, or Eddie, I know you worked with him closely for a long time, just a little insight into who he is as a person and what it was like to be working with him directly at that time. It's kind of clear to everyone who's worked around him that he's the hardest working person in the campaign. I mean, he'll ask you to to go the extra mile because he's already been there. You know, I mean, wow. when I traveled with him in 89 for a year, by the time I got up, he had already read like four newspapers. This is a time and an era we used to actually had newspapers. Right. Um, and he would circle articles and say, I want to I want to talk to this person. It could mm-hmm. be a scientist. It could be a an artist, a teacher, a politician. And he said, I want to go to this city next. And so it was like, here are your marching orders from the Washington Post, New York Times, USA Today. That's the kind of way he operated. He's also a very generous person. He's a very kind person. But I think the most important thing to realize about him is that he's dead serious about healing the racial divides in this country. Uh, I was with him one morning in Iowa, and we were at this freezing cold parking lot in Sioux City, uh, with these striking meat packers, and uh, you know, who would have thought that that these people would would be at the end of the session crying and sobbing? Uh, and why was that? You know, why did he connect with them? And basically, it came down to this. He said that in your suffering there is redemption. You know, this is a very deeply religious country, and when you invoke things like redemption and sacrifice, uh, that means something to a lot of people. And it also showed me, it just really kind of rocked my world, just sitting there watching this and saying, you know what, it seems impossible to heal the divisions in this country, but a moral vision can go a long, long way to doing that. We just need more people being able to say that and believe it and actualize it. It was very, very uh, moving to me. You know, what's funny is um, one-on-one because Jesse's like this commanding figure, this amazing public speaker, his booming voice. One-on-one, he talks so softly. <laughs> you can barely hear him sometimes. You have to strain. It's like, what did you say? Actually, I always found that juxtaposition kind of ironic. And that's what Eddie uh, was saying about the hardworking thing. He had this, uh, we met him at, I don't know, even which event it was. And he says, um, I was at home and I woke up and I looked around and I was like, I don't recognize this hotel room, right? In terms of like his level of being out there, being on the road was really just legendary. So I think I just say a couple things in terms of lessons, right? So I, you know, I dedicated my first book, Brown is a New White, to in part to Reverend, right? And so uh, what I said there, I think is I tried to distill a lot of the essence of this. I said the Reverend Jesse L. Jackson Sr., who risked his life to show the world the power and potential of an electoral rainbow coalition connected to the movement for social justice. I was paying attention. And I think that that's the piece. For one, the risking his life. People don't realize that it was a big deal for us to get Secret Service protection for Jesse. That was a whole thing in 84. There were 400 death threats against him. Four people were arrested because of wow. the seriousness of those threats. So I think that's important. He put his life on the line in the context of somebody who had been there and Dr. King was assassinated. And so to come through all of that and to still recognize that history and to still put himself out there is also very, very underappreciated with the significance of that. And that I think fundamentally it is this point about the synergy of the movement for social justice in an electoral context. And Jesse paved the path and showed us what was actually possible in that regard. And kind of what Eddie was just talking about in a very granular fashion, he would go to these communities, people who are doing the work of organizing, fighting for justice, had the relationships, knew the issues, and then would sit down with Jesse and he would learn from them. And then he would then use his platform to push those issues out to the larger world and then also create a vehicle for, for you know a lot of us to learn organizing and to learn connections. The greatest, not the greatest, but one of the most powerful illustrations of this, right? The 88 Democratic Convention, Jesse opens the speech thing, all of us think nationally televised, democratic conventions, all of us think we are seated, but we're really standing on someone's shoulders. Ladies and gentlemen, Rosa Parks, the mother of the civil rights movement. And he 
brings Rosa Parks up to the podium with him. I wonder if you've ever seen that in a national political event. So that is really what has stayed with me, I think, so much in that regard, is that the both the synergy of the movement and the electoral politics, as well as the opportunity to get the skills and the organizing, right? The 84 convention, Jesse was saying to his assembled delegates at the beginning, it says, discipline details hope. And he had us repeat that, discipline details hope. And that is, um, I think, some of the hallmarks of what it actually takes to make this kind of impact. And with that, we'll close out by listening to a few others share about the lessons that they learned from the movement that stuck with them. I would venture to say that there is not a single city in the Southwest that can be won without the Latino vote today. In 1988, in many places, we were considered a swing vote and not many people paid attention or placed interest in winning and securing our vote. Jesse Jackson not only wanted our vote, he cared about our issues. I learned what solidarity meant in real life. And I learned that if we unite as a rainbow, black, brown, Asian, American Indian, white working people, that we can secure victories without support from status quo elected officials. I believe that then, and I believe that now. I learned a lot from Jesse Jackson's campaign, and there are lessons that I carry with me to this very day. I just never really experienced a Rainbow Coalition before until I was at this event with these organizers from the Rainbow Coalition, and that inspired me. That let me know that it wasn't a fake rainbow. It was a real rainbow of real people making real commitments to justice and compassion for all people. And that has stayed with me in my body. My body knows that vibration. And for that, I am thankful to the Rainbow Coalition. All right. Thank you for joining in this walk down memory lane and Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. And as Eddie was saying, there's many lessons that we need to look at currently and going forward. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook, or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep hope alive and keep the faith.